Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in a time of great ferment, division, and dislocation. Lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. People who've been fighting for justice well before the pandemic and racial reckoning made the system's failures so apparent to all. Some scholars, like the great Reverend Dr. Barber, have said that we are in the third reconstruction, the second being the time after the civil rights movement and the first being 1863 to 1877. We find ourselves in a moment where we have a third chance to get it right. Who is to be included in your vision of the future? And how do we deal with the present divisions? Look at me, a Negro born free in the town of Baltimore. Raised a pauper, apprenticed as a caulker for ships going out to sea. Does your we include me? When I heard that Jean Bruskin's play, a musical called That Moment Was Now, explored the parallels between the Reconstruction era of U.S. history and today, I was like, yeah. I saw the show, loved it, and shared it widely. Jean is a man of many talents. He's a playwright, a longtime labor organizer, and a political activist. So, Jean, what drew you to write a musical set in 1869? Well, uh, you know, I've always sort of been fascinated by that period ever since I read a book called Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, I think like a lot of us, my history course in high school wasn't much really multiple choice and things like that. (laughs) We learned, you know, on one column were all the presidents and another column were, you know, some dates and you had to draw lines between them, (laughs) things like that, you know. Uh, But um, you know, I, I read Black Reconstruction and uh, and like it's just sort of turned my head around because it talked about the uh, formerly enslaved African-Americans as agents of their own freedom. And I had just started thinking about uh, uh, union organizing and he talked about the, the formerly enslaved walking off the plantation as a general strike. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, of course, they were workers. You're calling them slaves separates the fact that they were workers, except they had no wage, you know. They, uh, and so I've been fascinated and sort of frustrated ever since because the popular mythology, <clears throat> aside from the fact that uh, that everybody talks about our history basically being from the founding fathers and that that's, that, that's the only origin we need, was that the Civil War happened. We we won, meaning the North and the people against slavery. Uh, and, uh, and what does everybody complain about? Because all those people who were slaves were free. And, uh, and in my life experience, increasingly, I've seen, you know, that uh, that does not at all tell the story. And in fact, Reconstruction was the mo- a moment where 
uh, it all was sort of under consideration and everything was possible. Uh, and so uh, this was a time I started thinking of it as a time when America almost did the right thing. Almost. So that leads us to why now? I mean, what did you feel coming in the ether? Because when you started this research and started writing the play, we weren't in a pandemic. We weren't having a racial reckoning in America. And so what about the almost did you feel that um, makes what you did then and that research that you began so apropos today? Well, Uh, I mean, actually, it's sort of been an extraordinary, if you look at the last 10 years, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, we had this huge financial crisis, which had an enormous impact, you know, and then we have Barack Obama becoming the president, you know, Uh, and uh, and then just the sort of repeated failures of our economies to, like, take care of the basic needs of our people. And you had things like the Occupy Wall Street movement, where all these young people were basically talking about, you know, the 99%. Uh, And then really the Black Lives Matter movement started, you know, really, uh, you know, during the last 10 years. It's been around. Uh, It just hasn't uh, consolidated like this. And then you had the uh, Bernie Sanders moment where all these young people all of a sudden were saying, you know, we need big change. We need fundamental change. And a lot of young white students saying, you know, we don't like the way it is. You know, we disagree with our parents, maybe. And so uh, there was lots of change sort of uh, happening. And uh, I felt like, uh, you know, then there actually one of the interesting uh uh, things for me was uh, Ray, Reverend William Barber, who I had that opportunity when I was organizing packing house workers in uh, North Carolina in 2006 uh, to meet William Reverend William Barber before he had sort of emerged on the national scene. And he helped us in this organizing. And he talked about this this period being the third reconstruction with the civil rights movement being the second one. And I thought, what a fascinating concept. You know, let's bring back what that first reconstruction is so we can see how to make a third. Okay, so that brings me to, you sound like a historian, but also a journalist, but you are a union organizer. Uh, You just mentioned some of the work that you did with Reverend Dr. Barber. So how does that get you into writing Hamilton-style musicals? (laughs) Uh, Well... It is, it is an unlikely path. Even my <laughs> friends go, you wrote a musical. Uh, <clears throat> I and, grew and, up this, and this isn't your first. So. No, no. Well, I, uh, you know, I grew up with musicals in my house. You know, uh, we had, grew up in a Jewish working class family, but my father loved musicals, Fiddler on the Roof in Oklahoma. We would drive from Philadelphia with our uh, the three children in the car to Broadway to see a musical, which used to be affordable, and drive back to Philadelphia the same day because we couldn't afford a hotel, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so in this in the seventies, after I got out of college and I couldn't figure out what I what to do, a friend of mine, sort of at his inspiration, we played around and did a couple very amateur musicals with a bunch of friends for like community theater. And then I got into the labor movement. 
And uh, I had no time uh, to do theater for almost 40 years, you know, uh, but I just uh, had such a powerful opportunity to see what is a meatpacking worker's life? What's, an, what's an, uh, a nurse aide uh, in a nursing home? What, what's their life? You know, what's a school teacher um, uh, battling for just, you know, had it, not having 45 kids in her room, you know? And so I just felt like I got 40 years of the best of, a, of our, of our country. So when I retired, I thought, you know, okay, I'd done the organizing. What else can I do with this? You know, and I, I just sort of went back to this. And I had this dream one night that resulted in this play called Pray for the Dead, a musical tale of morgues, moguls, and mutiny. Uh, and we started unrolling it in dramatic readings, but then Trump got elected and everything sort of got turned around and I could never really fully get this play out there. At some point, I just, you know, uh, started thinking about doing a new one. Uh, and I, watched, I I was followed Hamilton closely, and I finally went to see it. And I was, I was just uh, struck by all the people in the audience who knew the words, which are very complicated, you know. And I was sitting in the very back row behind a post for $250 seats, you know. And I thought that... It was an absolutely brilliant theatrical production and the contradiction of having like George Washington walks out on the stage and he's six foot four African-American. It's like, you know, but uh, I was ultimately disappointed by the content because uh, it's a powerful performance, but I feel like uh, that, that there was an 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is, that all the people were in the, who wanted to be in the room where it happened could only be there because they had slaves working on their plantation and they weren't in the play and there were no songs about them. So I thought, what if I use what he did as, a, as an approach, but tell a different story? I won't have the funding that he had, <laughs> but, I can, but I can be inspired by that. And so that, that's sort of what happened. I understand it is. Music sticks with you in different ways, and certainly your your father understood that. And my niece and nephew sing the the tunes from Hamilton. Of course, they've never seen the show. So, uh -huh. going back to your story, then in your play, the story that you're telling, Frederick Douglass meets who, and they do what, and how to find these characters. So when I started thinking about, I decided I'm going to try doing reconstruction as my, as, as for this thing, you know, that Hamilton, my version. And so when you think of Frederick Douglass, well, I'm here in Maryland, you know, uh, and Frederick Douglass is the first person sort of came up. And I found out that there's a Douglass Myers Museum in Baltimore. And I thought, whoa, who's Myers? And so I went to this nice little museum on the waterfront and Isaac Myers was a worker and a union organizer. He worked in the same shipyard that Frederick Douglass escaped from, and they were both caulkers. They put the caulk in the seams of the ship. So I thought, well, that's really interesting. And so I started reading about Isaac Myers. I find he went to this convention in 1869 of the National Labor Union and gave a speech 
uh, about why black workers needed to be a part of that union. Otherwise, the union will never succeed. And the head of the union was a guy named William Silvis, an Irish guy, who invited him. And I thought, whoa, William Silvis. Then I find out they had 200,000 workers that were represented at that convention. And Isaac Meyer's speech gets on the front page of the New York Times the next day. So then I thought, okay, well, who else was involved? Well, at that convention was Susan B. Anthony. She was there representing women workers. And I thought, wow, I never even knew that part. So here, we're getting into my territory here, you know, women's rights, suffrage, women's workers, black workers, uh, iron workers. So I started sort of working that scene and those connections were real. And there's these connections to Frederick Douglass. But I searched and couldn't find who's the African-American woman that fits into this conversation. I didn't want to just throw somebody in there that wasn't real. And I thought, how could it be that when this intense thing was happening, there was no powerful black woman who was engaging on these issues? And I almost gave up. And my wife told me, Jean, there's going to be a picket line at your play <laughs> by some of the black women who I know and I'm working with. So I'm telling you right now, you better figure this out. I thought, oh, no. So yes. I, your, wife, your wife is a wise woman. <laughs> she was, you know, and it terrified me into it. And so there, I little by little, I started finding out about Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. And the more I found out, the more I realized what a remarkable woman she was, both as a novelist, as a poet, as a speaker, uh, as a teacher. And she, and most of these characters had a Baltimore connection. So I thought, that's it, you know. And I put Jay Gould in there because he was one of the robber barons of the time who once said I could hire one half of the working class to shoot the other half down. I thought, well, there, there's a representation of the power they were all fighting against. And so that was the group. That sounds like a fascinating place to be in the room when it happened. And uh-huh. as we think about those who are not in the room and the many unsung characters that you and I didn't learn about in history class, certainly, you know, I, I went to a magnet high school, but, you know, there are, the textbooks are national textbooks and you have only so much time to survey Know the whole history of the United States in your eleventh grade or whatever U.S. history course. Um, so, what else did you find when you kind of dug into those archives? Anyone else whose stories that you felt, hey, maybe maybe there'll be a play one day too? But <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, the thing that struck me the most was there were a lot of individuals, you know, and then there are people that emerged slightly later, incredible people like Ida B. Wells, you know. And uh, Eugene Debs came on sort of shortly after this period as one of the leaders of the uh, Railroad Workers Union. Uh, But what to me was incredible was that, uh, and this was a lot you could see in Du Bois, but then you could find more of this when you start researching it, is the ordinary people who don't make it into the books and whose names you would never hear, you know, so... One of the things that just blew me out of the water was this thing about the Mississippi washerwomen, you know. So here was 1866 uh, is when they first emerged. And so they really just recently out of slavery 
uh, and they the, they were the women who went around in Jackson, Mississippi, and washed the clothes for white women, you know. And they were getting the, the what apparently was happening is is that the the people that were hiring were playing them off against each other to get the wages down further and further to almost nothing. And so they organized the union. Uh, what they I don't think they necessarily called it that, but they organized. And they wrote a letter to the mayor of Jackson and said, we, the Mississippi washerwomen, basically will not work for anything less than, uh, I think it was 25 cents a day or something unimaginable. And any woman that violates that, any washerwoman that violates that will be held accountable by the group. Amazing. Thought, oh, my God. I, I literally have chills as you tell me the story, as you I imagine. Thought, these women oh walking into God. their power just out of slavery. I mean, it's we we stand on the shoulders of giants. We're uh, well. and that they they understood both the power of their collectivity, uh, not just to stand up to the power itself, but to hold each other accountable. You know, to the community. Uh, and there was another piece that struck me, which is that. Uh, that after Isaac Myers went to Silvis's National Labor Union Convention, that same year, he had put in motion with the support of Frederick Douglass, who was helping him organize another, his version of the National Labor Union, which in history books is called the Colored National Labor Union. But somebody put colored in parentheses. He didn't call it. He called it the National Labor Union. Everybody was invited. So I went into these archives uh, by of Philip Foner, who actually had the original motions and documents from workers all over the country deciding to come, to passing a resolution to come to Isaac Myers and Frederick Douglass's National Labor Union. And so I'm reading things of workers like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Galveston, Texas, saying, uh, us, we workers in Galveston support this convention and we will send a delegate to Washington. I'm thinking, wait a minute, Galveston, Texas, you're going to send, you know, Joe Brown from Galveston, Texas to Washington, D.C. in 1866. How did he get there? But he got there. They had this convention and, it, and they organized workers all over the country. I mean, when you dig into history, it's just... So eye-opening. And the, after these conventions and the success of some of the movement, you know, we have the spectacular, what we do know about Reconstruction, often in the ether and in mythology, is that it failed. But right. actually, when you think about it, whatever we call the quote-unquote failure of Reconstruction is the testament to its success. It was working yeah. too well in the minds of the white supremacists, and therefore the backlash was... Dramatic, harsh, swift, deadly, and lasted decades. So as you were talking about earlier, the second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, didn't start until, you know, bubbling up in the 50s that led to the, um, you know, what we see in the manifestations in the 60s. And so given that, and this, if this is the third, and the moment is now again, right? what should we be watching for? What did we... What do we need to learn from those prior two in order not to have another play written by somebody in the future about how we miss this moment now? 
So what can you share with us, given your deep insights? Well, uh, you know, re Reconstruction, like you said, it didn't fail. It was really destroyed. But what Reconstruction was, what they would, what was understood by some, uh, and, and certainly in retrospect, this was Du Bois' perspective, but this was what, in some ways, what uh, African Americans in that period understood was that the promise of America could never be achieved without the full equality of African Americans, right? And that uh, is so fundamental. And it's true in this country because of the origins of the country and the origins of, of the way the wealth and the, and the role of the cotton and so on and the role of industrialization being created off the, off the backs of the, of the slaves in the South in our country. So everything sort of has to shift uh, that way. And so that was a moment. And uh, there's a part in the, in the play where uh, Frederick Douglass is kicking things off and he's bringing people together and he's urging them to act. And he says that uh, we have to act before it's too late to create a moment, a plan for massive foment in this moment. For moments come and moments pass, but moments don't last forever. We cannot freeze them. We must seize them. And it's a really powerful concept. And we have to understand that the Black Lives Matter movement is it because if Black lives don't matter, no lives matter. Therefore, if Black lives matter, all lives matter. And so this is a movement really for everybody. And uh, we need to we need to embrace it that way and and build it into our vision of the future. Because if you really genuinely achieve full equality uh, in, in every way for African Americans, is the country would look dramatically different, and all our lives would be dramatically better. I mean, there's some math behind that recently done by Citigroup that's adjust in the last twenty years. If we had racial inclusion and um, racial equity as part of our operating system, we would be adding, starting today, here forward, $5 trillion to the GDP if we just think in economic terms. But imagine the thriving lives because the cost was $16 trillion of just mm -hmm. the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. We're many more hundreds of years that we could add to that essentially lost opportunity and loss of lives really as well. So as we think forward, this next normal that we need to build from here in this post-COVID world that's been completely disruptive, disrupted and we see these failures of the market and the healthcare system and everything else that's been revealed more broadly because many people already knew, many people's lives experienced the failures before right now. But it's now obvious to many more. So in this next normal, in order to have succeeded this next time around in building back better, building a different world, however many people are saying various phrases for this next normal, in your estimation, what is one characteristic that needs to be there for us to have seized this moment? I think we have to understand, uh, uh, again, why does it keep coming back to the issue of racism? And fundamentally, uh, racism uh, is an attempt to divide us. 
and it's and it created a system where enormous wealth was possible because of enormous exploitation. And so it is fundamentally a uh, a creation, an economic phenomena in the sense that uh, that it it wasn't just because some people were bad. You know, it was it was sort of if you read the like the sixteen nineteen project, sort of you know that. And so I think that that by switching that gear, we have to rethink our whole economy because there's no part of our economic system that when people talk about structural racism, fundamentally what they mean is that the entire country, from the health system to the housing system, to the job system, to the education system, was sort of built with this racial divide sort of glommed into it. And uh, so as a result, we get an inferior system for all people. You know, everybody suffers. And so uh, if we can sort of open that up, then we can open everything up. So I feel like that, that, uh, that that's the sort of single point. And what white people have to understand is that really... Uh, and we, we, we talk about this in the play where like uh, that while black people were captured by it, white people were sickened by it, you know, and it, and, it, and it stuck to our bones and our DNA. What we have to understand is how much we have to gain here. We have really, there's, there's a thing called white privilege where the system was set up on one hand where we get things that black people don't. But we all, and when you add it all up, it, everyone's lives would be better in the end if we just got rid of this divide. And uh, it's deep. We have to look at it in the corporate level where a lot of the power is, and we have to look at that on the street level where we live and everywhere in between. Well, you get a resounding amen from me on that. <laughs> so as we come to a close, What's next for you and this play, other plays? Are we going to see more of that moment was now out in the streets once they reopen? And um, let's hear a little bit more about your vision for next. Well, you know, we had two runs through the show uh, in September 2019 and then right before COVID in 2020 in Baltimore. And the show was really put together on a shoestring budget. Basically, I begged and borrowed from anybody who would give me enough money to pay these wonderful, talented people. Uh, and then we had plans to take it on the road, all of which crashed, you know. So the film, we have a film which I think works uh, uh, unusually well for a play. We have a curriculum that goes with the film, and we have a script and a score, and everything is sort of ready to be resurrected. What we really don't have is any financial backing, you know. Uh, wherever it's played, it's been well received. When high school kids came to see it, one of the performances in Baltimore for 150 high school students, they stood up and and cheered and screamed. I was like just astounded. I thought oh, maybe awesome. they'd fall asleep or something because <laughs> they were forced to go there. It's and it was better than taking a quiz, right? <laughs> but there were moments in there, for example, when uh, when uh, uh, the the uh, Julian Nixon, the, uh, the actress, sings "Ain't I a Woman." I am a woman. Said I, I am a woman. 
was this one row of, they looked like maybe 15-year-old girls, who stood up and started screaming, you know, when she's saying, I am a woman, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I don't know whether they think they're feminists or whatever it is, but they totally get this. And who said this? Sojourner Truth, you know. And when did she say that? You know, 1850 is when she really, right around then when she really said that. I can eat as much as any man. I can bear the last as much as any man can. Look at me, people. Anyway, so I feel like the play has enormous possibilities. We have a website, themomentwasnow.com, where people can make a contribution to our GoFundMe. Uh, but they can also reach out to me uh, through the website or at genebruskin at gmail.com. We have a fiscal conduit where people can make contributions, uh, to tax-free contributions. Uh, and if, just to be honest with you, I wrote this play. I'm an organizer, but I'm not too good on the producer <laughs> fundraiser part. Uh, but I think it's a great partnership that we'd love to engage with in people and, uh, and make it put it into the and high schools more and durable colleges than having and, uh, been personally and back into the and your emotions. You know, you will always remember how people treated you, made you feel. And I was certainly moved by the show. I was moved by your story of those 15 year old girls because I imagined myself at that mm -hmm. age and younger, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you can't see who's listening, but I have tears in my eyes because I think about my nieces and that they would grow up in a world inspired by these leaders and a show like yours where they can hear Ain't I a Woman and maybe for the first time because their textbooks might not have covered it either. So yeah. thank you, Jean. And it's the music, Monique. You know, if I stood up in front of these girls and read, you know, her uh, Sojourner True speech, they might find it interesting, but it would, when you hear it sung, it's the music that, uh, and that's the brilliance of Hamilton. You can tell history through music uh, and, uh, and you can say things and teach people in a way that they can completely enjoy the experience. You know, it's not like school. <laughs> it's not like school. And on that note, thank you for joining us today. It's been a delight to talk with you, and I look forward to seeing where from here for both that moment was now and anything else you do thereafter. Thank you, and I, I think I would like just end to say that uh, that uh, there's a line in one of our songs that says, "Let America be all that it can be," and that's really the final message here. That's what we all want. Thanks, Gene. Thank you. The reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Jillian Marcel. We have benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. And we'd love you to share your favorite quote or mantra so we can share it with the world with full credit. Email us at tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lenika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for our mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us. Impactalpha.com slash subscribe. This week's parting inspiration, the immortal words of W.E.B. Dubois. 
Now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, not some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done and not some future day or future year.